0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Pat Duggins discusses his book, Final Countdown, NASA
2: and the End of the Space Shuttle Program. When Apollo ended, there was a tremendous bright flight. In other words, the people that that made Apollo work one minute could be turning screws and bolts on Saturn V rockets and literally could be working at gas stations the next.
0: We'll visit the Morikami Museum and Japanese Garden in Delray Beach.
3: My first day of my job was one of the festival. I felt at home.
0: And take a trip to the historic Bach Tower Gardens in Lake Wales. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Pat Duggins is author of the book, Final Countdown, NASA and the End of the Space Shuttle Program, now available in paperback from the University Press of Florida. As a broadcast journalist, Pat Duggins has been covering the space program for more than 23 years. I've known Pat for most of that time. We're about the same age and have similar childhood backgrounds. Our fathers were both in the Air Force in the summer of 1969, and we were both just starting grade school
2: when Neil Armstrong first set foot on the moon. We both remember that day. Actually, I do. Um, I, my, my father, as you mentioned, was in the Air Force, and we were stationed at Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage, Alaska, which meant at the time I was old enough to appreciate the scenery but too young to have to shovel the snow out of the walks. so I was doing fine. Now, also, the time zone difference plays into this because when Neil and Buzz stepped on the moon during Apollo 11, it was like 1030 at night. So most school kids had to kind of you know, cheat on their teachers and, and stay up late you know, on a school night to see what was going on. We were just sitting down to dinner when he goes down the ladder in one small step and all that sort of stuff. So uh, then from there, my father gets transferred down to Patrick Air Force Base, which is just south of the Kennedy Space Center. So here I am, 10 years old, walking out back, and there's Apollo 14 with Alan Shepard on board going off. A main thesis of the book Final Countdown,
0: NASA and the End of the Space Shuttle Program is that while the Apollo program had a clear mission, the shuttle program did not. Duggins describes NASA's initial thinking about the purpose of the shuttle program.
2: Well, they were kind of painted into a, a, a corner by Congress, because as soon as Neil Armstrong's little toe hit the moon, like 50,000 Kennedy Space Center engineers and technicians lost their jobs immediately, because when we put on the the man-moon mission, the whole point was we're going to beat those Russians. So as soon as we get there, it's like, well, mission's over. What do we do now? So that, that's when NASA's budget started going away. So uh, seeing it kind of ebb like that, it, it became very clear that it was the mission that really was what stoked the fires at NASA and what got them going. And with the shuttle, the way I I phrase it in the book is Apollo worked because it was a mission that went looking for its spacecraft, and the shuttle didn't work because it was a spacecraft that went looking for a mission. So the shuttle was created to be sort of a space truck initially to go and service a space station in orbit, but Congress wouldn't pay for the space station. In fact, they wouldn't even pay for a fully reusable orbiter, which is what NASA wanted for the initial shuttle program. So you had this space plane, basically, as the name implies, shuttling back and forth to orbit with really nothing to do. So that's when all of the the understandable criticism started up of NASA's kind of, like, well, what are you doing? I mean, we basically gave up the moon when we stopped Apollo, and now we're stuck in low Earth orbit. And only now, 30 years later, is NASA getting ready to take that leap off the high dive and maybe go back to the moon and Mars, assuming Congress and the White House want to pay for it.
0: People who grew up with the Apollo program were inspired by space travel, Partially because of the vague purpose of the shuttle program, people who grew up with it were less inspired, even on the Space Coast. As NASA shifted from Apollo to the shuttle,
2: the workforce also changed. Pat Duggins. When Apollo ended, there was a tremendous bright flight. In other words, the people that that made Apollo work, one minute could be turning screws and bolts on Saturn V rockets and literally could be working at gas stations the next so a lot of them went off to other projects so when the space program started up remember there was that like 5 year gap between 1975 that's when the Apollo Soyuz joint mission with the Russians flew and that was the last Apollo flight and the very first flight of the shuttle so you have this this chasm of time when most of the engineers here between 75 and 81 we're off doing something else. So when NASA started up the shuttle program, they had to re-recruit just about everybody to come over and, and make the shuttles fly. So And, and even when the uh, the Challenger accident occurred and they had the, uh, the, the report afterwards, they said one of the things they brought out in that report was like, folks... The people who were here for Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo are gone. I mean, the folks that picked up were these young bucks who really had to relearn about everything going on in the space program when the shuttle program started up, and the the Challenger Commission felt that was really a a detriment to NASA.
0: On January 28, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger was destroyed 73 seconds after its launch from the Kennedy Space Center. An O-ring seal in the right solid rocket booster had failed, the entire crew perished, including the first civilian in space, history teacher Krista McAuliffe. That disaster was Pat Duggan's introduction to covering the space program. In his book, The Final Countdown, Duggan's recounts the poignant memories of children, now grown, who witnessed the Challenger disaster. He says that if anything positive came out of the disaster, it's that NASA re-examined its own procedures.
2: I think if it just... Shook NASA up a little bit to uh, to even temporarily to realize that there was something wrong with its corporate culture. I think that was that was fine because in in the book, it's it's a it's a well known quote that the person who said it denies, but it's kind of you know out there in part of shuttle lore that when when they were preparing to launch Challenger, it was twenty seven degrees above zero, and the engineers for Morton Thiokol, who built the solid rocket boosters had never tested the o-ring gaskets which keep the booster thrust inside the sh- the, the the rockets and shooting down They've never subjected it to that kind of cold so they didn't know whether or not there would be a danger so they go to one of their uh... managers who when this is the famous quote says well my god when do you want us to launch Thy call april now the person who said that said that he didn't say that but well that's it's part of the part of the part of the legend out there so there was a managerial disconnect there that nasa had that was pointed out by the challenger uh, commission and frankly about the same thing happened when the columbia accident occurred in 2003 i mean there was that that same criticism of some kind of a you know just just something not right in the corporate culture at nasa so if it kind of jarred them a little bit at considerable expense, obviously, to, you know, to get back on the straight and narrow, then I guess there are those who would say that, that that would be a good thing to come out of it.
0: While Pat Duggins began covering the space program with the Challenger disaster, he was a seasoned broadcast journalist on February 1st, 2003, when the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated upon re-entry into Earth's atmosphere over Texas. During launch, a piece of foam insulation had broken off of the shuttle's external tank,
2: damaging Columbia's thermal protection system. The mission it included uh, the first Israeli to go into space, and it was like a two-week-long science mission, because at, at that phase of NASA's, uh, NASA's uh, career, I guess you'd call it, you were either going to fly a shuttle mission to the International Space Station, or there was some thought about sending uh, a crew on to repair the Hubble Space Telescope one last time. So you're going to do one or the other, and that's it. So when the Columbia mission that was lost came along, it was kind of a throwback to the old days of hey, let's just go into orbit and do science and that's it. So it was it was kind of it was unique in that way. But also nothing went wrong. So from the perspective of you know writing about it as a reporter, it was one of the most boring missions on the face of the planet. I mean, thank goodness the Super Bowl was on there because you had what well, the Raiders versus the Bucks, I think it was. So the astronauts were asked to give their their predictions for the game. So at least that was something to report on. And I think at one time the uh, the air conditioner on the spacecraft didn't work out, so they had to had to, had to take a like a hose from the the, the cockpit and then feed it back into the labs where the astronauts were working. So that was something to report about. But aside from that, I mean, no one at the time really knew just how serious the damage was from that piece of foam that came off the tank about one minute into the liftoff. The engineers had warned about it. The the NASA managers had said, understandably, okay, can you prove there was a problem? And they said, well, no, we really can't. So everybody just kind of pressed on with the mission. And it wasn't until landing day that we knew that something was up. So I'm I'm out there at the Kennedy Space Center landing strip and I'm writing uh my first post landing story on my laptop and it's like, you know, you've got you've got a small building where the reporters and the and the, the public affairs people work and then you have this big patch of wet grass and then you have the landing strip. And at the edge of the landing strip is a is a digital clock that counts from 1 hour down to 0 because when the astronauts fire their jets, it's 1 hour and then you can see them going by on 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 the on the on the runway. So I'm sitting there writing about the next mission, everything's fine and I'm kind of, you know, flicking my eyes up to watch this this clock. Cuz when you get to 2 minutes prior to landing, you get double sonic booms off the nose and the tail of the spacecraft. It's like a double shotgun boom boom. And I'm sitting here writing away and watching the clock and I'm writing and I'm watching the clock and it gets down to 2 minutes. And then it keeps going. And there's no sound. So at that point, the laptop goes shut find the first NASA manager I could. I asked her, what do you think happened? And she just looked at me and said, we've lost an orbiter. And then the guards with the automatic weapons show up. And it's like, it is time to leave the landing strip now, as if they had to coax us. Duggan spent the rest of the day reporting
0: on the disaster from the main press area at the Kennedy Space Center. The destruction of Columbia prompted the scheduled shutdown of the space shuttle program in 2010. If you ask the
2: White House, that's why, because for the longest time, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the interview here, the, the shuttle has been a spacecraft without a mission. And if we're if we're going to go back to the moon, if we're going to go on to Mars, then there's no way that that we're going to be able to keep the space shuttle program going. Because as technologically interesting as the shuttle is, and it is, you know, the most sophisticated flying vehicle in the world, it was based on technology from the 1970s. I mean, when the days of disco was going on, this is when they put together the shuttle. So if you're going to move on, you got to get rid of it. So that that's sort of, there are a lot of people who are very nostalgic about the shuttle, but it's got to go if NASA's going to progress.
0: If NASA is to have a bright future, it must learn from the past. Since future NASA projects depend on funding and public interest, Duggan says NASA needs to aim high.
2: I think that if NASA is going to go from low Earth orbit to somewhere and not wind up back on the moon where they would be subject to fresh criticism for just repeating the glory days of Apollo, it's kind of like you're, you're standing on the end of a high die for 30 years waiting for somebody to yell jump. I mean, if you're going to go somewhere and do something, the, the, the moon is a likely target, but would you want to stop there? Again, the asteroid belt's a possibility. Mars might be a possibility. There are a whole bunch of different reasons but that you might want to go somewhere, but then again, are you willing to take on the risks? Because when you go to Mars, it's totally different than when you go to the moon. I mean, everybody saw the movie Apollo 13, and it's, you know, the, the spaceship has an explosion. Oh, my gosh, will the astronauts get back and all that? That's a three-day trip to the moon. Three days back, as astronaut John Young said, if you have a problem on the moon, you're three days from a can of beans. You send someone to Mars, probably six months there, a year on the planet, waiting for the Earth and Mars to line up again in their orbits around the Sun, and then a six month trip back. so if you have a problem on the way there, what do you think Houston's going to do? I mean you know we'll send we'll send the auto club for you, yeah, sure you know we'll leave, we'll leave the hood up on your spaceship so they know that it's you The possibility of losing astronauts on a trip to Mars is so in your face is so possible that if you're going to go, I mean, you really got to be prepared, which, by the way, is one reason people say we ought to go back to the moon. Test the technology, be sure of it, and then after that, maybe go to Mars. 2008
0: was the 50th anniversary of the establishment of NASA, and the summer of 2009 marks the 40th anniversary of the Apollo program successfully taking man to the moon. These milestones are being recognized just as NASA is changing leadership
2: and trying to deal with the future. There's a lot of disagreement as to whether or not the current path that NASA is taking is the right one. There's an Augustine commission going on right now that was put together by President Obama to go back and look at everything that was put into place following the Columbia accident. In other words, we've got a new Apollo-style capsule called Orion. Everybody's pretty well agreed that that that's the way to go in terms of the design of the vehicle. But what kind of rocket will boost it into space... It's all over the map. You've got people who say let's take a super-sized version of the space shuttle booster that's called Ares and use that. There are critics out there that say that there's just a whole bag of horrors regarding the design of that vehicle. They recommend taking other shuttle leftovers and putting it together into something called Jupiter. There are folks out there who would be equally happy if they used uh, liquid-fueled rockets like the, uh, the Atlas V and the Delta IV, most obviously the contractors who build the Atlas V and the Delta IV, but that's another story. And so you've got this presidential commission that's trying to piece all of this mishmash together and figure out. What kind of technology would be best to use? What kind of rocket to use? Should we go back to the moon? Should we go straight to Mars? Should we go on to explore uh, asteroids? There are members of the astronaut corps that think that's what NASA ought to do next. So really, it's, it's, it's almost a grab bag in terms of what may actually happen. Probably the worst thing I think NASA could probably do would be to go back to the moon and stop, because then everybody who hates NASA is going to come back and say, well, great, the American space program just achieved what our grandparents did using slide rules back in the 1960s, and that's all. So... Whatever whatever they do, I'll report on it, but that's probably what's going to happen if they just go back to the moon. Pat Duggins has been covering the
0: space program as a broadcast journalist for more than 23 years. His book, Final Countdown, NASA and the End of the Space Shuttle Program, is now available in paperback from the University Press of Florida. To order the book online, just go to myfloridahistory.org and click on Books and Gifts. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about all of the great upcoming events presented by the Florida Historical Society, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. That's myfloridahistory.org. When Henry Flagler extended his railway into South Florida, he encouraged the development of communities along the route. The Yamato community was a settlement of Japanese farmers. The existing legacy of that group is the Morikami Museum and Japanese Garden in Delray Beach. Janie Gould has more.
2: as a Film
4: for Visitors explains, the Morikami Museum and Japanese Gardens in Delray Beach has an authentic tea house, a model of a Japanese villa, and a 16-acre garden. Ponds and bridges and waterfalls make for a soothing setting. Four Japanese festivals are observed throughout the year.
3: My first day of my job was one of the festival. I felt at home, not because the Japanese things they are doing. There was American people who are doing the Japanese, you know, inference and working together. It's almost I had a tear (laughs) my eye. Liko
4: Nishioka has been education director at the Murakami for 15 years. When she first came to the U.S., she told her parents she'd be home in three months. That was 34 years ago. People from all over seem to feel at home when they visit the Murakami. Juan Sarda and his daughter Carol were strolling down a winding path.
3: This makes me remember my country. Peru in South America.
1: Peru actually has a lot of Japanese influences. Fujimori was our president. There are a lot of trees, a lot of the same flowers, a lot of the same fruits even.
4: Chuck Weaver and Melanie Barrett came for the day from Lakeland. They plan to learn the Japanese language and visit Japan someday. In the meantime, they say the Murakami is the next best thing.
3: It's mind-blowing. I wasn't expecting this much quality.
4: A group of Japanese farmers settled in southern Palm Beach County around 1905 to grow pineapples. One of those farmers was a man named George Murakami.
2: Uh, He acquired this property in the closing
5: days of World War II. About 20 years later, he began what turned out to be a 10-year campaign to give away this property for use as a park.
4: Tom Gregerson is cultural director at the Museum and Gardens. It took a decade for Murakami to convince Palm Beach County to take his land. In the 1970s, it was out in the country, remote from Delray Beach and potential visitors. Now, condominiums and shopping centers line the nearby highways. The Murakami Museum attracted 162,000 visitors just last year. Waterfalls and ponds provide peaceful vistas. There's a tropical bonsai collection.
5: I think the garden really uses native plants, uh, treated in such a way that they exhibit a Japanese appeal,
4: I noticed also it's hard not to notice there's a lot of Florida fauna out there, alligators.
3: Linda, yeah. the, allig- He's in iguana? the iguana doesn't
4: okay. have the
0: alligators there. He likes that too.
3: Blue herons eating fish. Well blue helen is beautiful.
4: Japanese gardens can include what's known as turtle islands and crane islands. The crane is a sacred bird in Japan. At a memorial service recently on Turtle Island, a
3: blue heron that looked an awful lot like a crane appeared suddenly. It was wonderful timing. Just as we started the memorial service, this blue heron flew in and listened the entire time. There's a Japanese pond filled with some
4: really big koi fish, and that's always a hit with children.
3: Their favorite activity (laughs) is giving fish food, so... (laughs) Our koi is very well fed.
4: A while back, Liko Nishioka realized the flora at Murakami was missing a key Japanese element, cherry trees. She did her homework and found that a tree that grows well in Okinawa
3: could survive the heat of South Florida. So I planted here, and actually this year had two flowers. (laughs) It's becoming more like a Japan. It's complete cherry flower. It's called sakura
0: and bamboo and pine. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Another unique place of serenity and personal reflection is the historic Bock Tower Garden in Lake Wales. As Bill Dudley reports, this place was developed as an island of tranquility more than 70 years ago. There's a real strong sense of peacefulness and restfulness
5: here, and that's exactly what Olmsted designed it for,
1: and it was really Bock's intent. For the last 14 years, David Price has been Director of Horticulture at Bock Tower Gardens. It's a job that involves not only looking after the myriad plantings, but also conserving the historical aspects of the design and the mission of its creator. As we stand here we're looking out over the overlook
5: vista. You can see about 16 miles to the horizon past Bartow. It was very much Olmsted's intent as you came to the top of the hill and came up to this oak tree, you turned to the right and looked out over the the view so you had a sense that you just climbed a very high mountain and then as you came around the oak tree the view of the tower was revealed. And really in a sense this whole garden is is like that. You go down a path, you go into an enclosed area, very dark and almost kind of a mysterious feel to it. Maybe even a sense you're lost and then you come around the corner and that
1: vista opens up into a great lawn or, or maybe a vista out over the countryside. Having grown rich in the publishing business in the early 1900s, Dutch immigrant Edward Bach became a tireless advocate for humanitarian causes worldwide, even offering his own $100,000 peace prize after World War I. On a hill near a small central Florida community, Bach discovered a kind of sanctuary from his working life back in Philadelphia. At just under 300 feet, it's the highest point on the Florida peninsula. He took walks up on the hill, a very secluded place for him to sit,
5: and, and just to think and ponder life. He had a vision to create a public garden for his friends, as well as the local people to enjoy, and as that idea grew, it grew to more of a public garden open to every one of the state and every one of the nation.
1: Bach hired Frederick Law Olmsted, Jr., son of the man who designed New York's Central Park, giving him carte blanche to design a kind of garden retreat.
6: The idea was to create a place that was a special place of sanctuary and calm, and then Olmsted realized that because of the elevation, in, which was so rare in the state, that what they could begin to think about doing was something that introduced the element of surprise in the landscape and the point that he makes over and over which his father makes about central park is that the the viewer or the participant in the landscape would have foremost in their mind as they walk through it an idea about what the whole place was meant to be.
1: University of Miami architect Joanna Lombard says Bach's vision harkens back to a time when landscape was first thought to have an effect on human behavior.
6: People were discovering the relationship between living conditions and health and the quality of water and health and mosquitoes and disease and so the idea that landscape could be healthful was a really powerful idea and Then when that is extended to be healthful to the psyche, then that's even more important. In
1: 1929, President Calvin Coolidge came to Florida to dedicate the garden and its centerpiece, a 200-foot Gothic tower covered with elaborate carvings of animals and plants, reflecting the 19th century arts and crafts movement. Inside the tower is a carillon containing 60 bronze bells, the biggest weighing nearly 12 tons. Herio Restina is Curator of Education at Bock Tower Gardens.
3: He wanted to make a bird sanctuary first. Then he thought that the need a centerpiece, and he thought about his homeland, the Netherlands, where the carillon towers originate, and then he had the tower built from a coquina rock from St. Augustine, and then Georgia marble, the pink and gray marble. And these bells were actually cast in Longborough, England.
5: This early success of the gardens was built on the fact that that was the age of the automobile. And Highway 27 was the main thoroughfare going south, especially after the war, the numbers of visitors we had One year we had uh,
1: 600,000 visitors. These days, even with the proliferation of theme parks in Central Florida, attendance averages around 200,000 a year. As they stroll the grounds or sit quietly on scattered benches, many of these visitors may well be experiencing something of the original vision of Edward Bach over 70 years ago.
6: People were hopeful that they could in fact rebuild the world in a way that would be better. Today maybe people aren't as hopeful that we can do that, they're not as hopeful that these things have restorative properties. And, um, and so we're in a bit of a different situation. To me, it's just evidence of such confidence and hope that one can have a positive impact, that one can make things better than you found them. And, and I think that's a really important lesson for us today.
1: I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers,
0: the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I hope you'll join us again next week and stop by our website at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, And by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance,
1: Incorporated.